Welcome Atlantic Radio listeners to another episode of The History Show. They say the next big thing is here, that the revolution's near, but to me it seems quite clear, that it's all just a little bit of history repeating. Courtesy of Dukas, Tony McCarthy was asked to give a speech and talk, and his speech was about the Battle of Jutland. I was very privileged to get the opportunity to record this lecture live. Tony himself is a Bayro man. Uh, he's stationed in Skibrina as a guard. Uh, but Tony uh, researched, wrote and speaks passionately about the Battle of Jutland and indeed its West Cork connections in this lecture. The Battle of Jutland was a major naval conflict in World War I and it took place on the 31st of May to the 1st of June. Uh, huge casualties were inflicted and Tony's going to tell you all about it and he's also going to tell you about the West Cork collect, uh, connection. Indeed he's going to talk about uh, the impact of the Navy on people from West Cork and he also looks at the high casualty rate during that uh, short but bitter conflict. Indeed that was a crippling uh, effect on the German Navy though the Germans didn't inflict more casualties on the British as Tony will explain it more or less crippled the German Navy and they never came out in such forces again. So tune in, relax and settle into Tony McCarthy's fantastic lecture about the Battle of Jutland. I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. Thanks very much. Um, first of all, I suppose there's a crowd gone into the church and um, they're going to hear about um, hell that was created by God. I'm going to tell you about a hell that was created by man, so... Hell is definitely very topical in Clannock Hilti tonight. Um, I'd like to, first of all, I must uh, thank uh, Dukas Clannock Hilti for giving me the opportunity to um, give this talk. Um, I haven't given it in this part of the country before. I gave it in Castletown Bear there about a month ago. And um, I'm delighted that I'm able to give it to a local audience because as many of the people that uh, died in Jutland from Cork uh, there was about 30 of them from West Cork and Skibbereen and Clannacilty, Barry Row in particular. Um, I was, first of all, my interest in it uh, arose in, um, when I was being brought up in Barry Row. My grandfather was in the house with me for the first uh, 12 or 13 years of my life, and he had a friend called Mike Brickley from Lehenna. And um, Mike, uh, my grandfather, had told me at some stage that Mike lost two brothers in the First World War. They were um, killed in a ship. And uh, he also told me that uh, there was another neighbour of theirs, um, a Falviman, who also died in the First World War. Um, roll on till about was five or six years ago, and I came across a book. I never knew what ships they died on or... Uh, what the circumstances of their deaths were. But about five years ago or six years ago, this book came out. It's called A Great Sacrifice. Uh, Many of you probably have seen it. Um, It records over 5,000 Cork servicemen who died in the Great War. And lo and behold, the two Brickleys and John Falvey um, were in the book. And the name of the ship, and to my surprise, all three of them died in the one battle. They came from the same, almost the same farmyard. It was only about 150 yards between um, the Brickley household and the Falvey household. And the Falvey, John Falvey also had two more brothers that, who fought in the war and they survived it. They were all uh, on ships. Um, 
So another 2012-2014, I um, did a dissertation, or did a, a diploma in genealogy in UCC, and I had to do a dissertation, so I picked my subject as um, the Battle of Jutland, the West Cartman that died in the Battle of Jutland. And being genealogy, it had to have a focus on um, family history. So I picked two families. One of them was the Brickleys, and the other family was the uh, relations of my wife's, who are Edies, um, who had... Uh, one of them had fought in the Battle of Jutland, and his father had immigrated from Kilmacabee in 1895. They had originally come over with Cromwell in um, the 1649 or so, and they had settled in Kilmeen, and some of them settled around Clannacilty um, and Kilmacabee. And uh, this branch went back to Wales, and one of them fought in Jutland. So I was really looking at uh, the experiences of the Irish uh, family here and the English-Irish family over and uh, there was a different experience actually, obviously. So I suppose first of all we'll start with um, an overview of the battle. Um, it is known by many as the greatest sea battle ever fought. Uh, it was a vicious savage battle that lasted uh, at its most intense was about five or six hours. It was fought between the German High Seas Fleet and the British Grand Fleet, and it was the culmination of an arms race that started way back in 1889. Uh, there was 150 British ships and um, 93 German ships involved in the battle, with over 100,000 sailors. Now, the British at the end of the battle had lost 17 ships, and the uh, Germans had lost 11. These were state-of-the-art ships, all uh, to build them with that had been over a million and a half at the time to build, which would be over a billion today in today's money. There was over 120 Cork uh, fatalities in it, um, and this compares with 104 in Ulster, which seems very small for six counties of Ulster, and over 120 in Cork. But I think it's really due to um, the fact that a lot of Ulstermen they were, got employment all right in the Navy, but it was like at shipbuilding and stuff like that around Belfast. But here you had to go on the ships to get employment and go away on the ships, and it was a tough life. Um, at least 35 of the people that fought in Jutland were from the Barry Row, Cot McSherry area, and there were six of those died. Uh, there was a total of 8,648 killed in the battle. Uh, and this is the map of the, um, the battle area. Off, this is Jutland here, and it was fought up and down off this coast here. The Germans had come out of Jade and um, Coxhaven down here, and uh, the British fleet had come down from Scotland, Scapa Flow, Edinburgh, and Cromarty. And uh, the battle where the black dot is there is where it kind of started, and we north and south for a couple of hours. First of all, we'll just briefly go back to the British Navy in the 1800s. Um, there was up to 1815, we had the Napoleonic Wars, and then there was a relatively peaceful uh, century for the British um, between 1815 and 1914. Um, it was completely different to the previous two centuries where they had fought with the Spanish, they'd fought with the French, and they'd fought with the Americans. Um, but they had a relatively quiet period. However, they still dominated the seas and dominated the trade routes, maritime trade routes. Um, and they were unchallenged as a sea power. Uh, there was, in this, that century, there was huge changes in the ships. 
Um, and some of the obvious ones were the hull had changed from a wooden hull at the beginning of the 1800s to the middle of the century, the 1840s, 1850s, we had iron-clad hulls, which was basically uh, metal put over um, wood. And then at the end of the century, everything was steel, steel hulls. Uh, the propulsion had changed um, from sail to um, steam, and sail had um, its limitations. Obviously, if the wind wasn't coming from the right direction, it was uh, much harder to sail against the wind. It was possible, but it uh, made it much more difficult. Um, uh, but the only thing was that you could stay out at sea as long as you had enough food on board, so you could stay months at sea with sail, whereas with steam, you were limited by the fuel, which was coal, and generally the ships had only enough coal to last at full speed. They'd only have enough coal to last five to seven days. So you had to have bases where you could load up coal, and that was very important with an empire, that the British had bases that they could go to, friendly bases, that they could load up their coal. Uh, the guns on the ships had changed from cannon-type guns in the um, sailing ships to armour-piercing shells in the... Um, more modern warships of the of before the First World War, the cannon w would be able to fire shells maybe a thousand, a thousand feet or three hundred yards or so. Um, whereas the warships of the First World War could fire shells for t up to ten and a half or eleven miles, twenty-two thousand um, yards or so. That's what their range was. Um, the other thing was the guns were fixed. And the old sailing ships, so they were broadside, so you had to get up close and you had, could only fire directly at the enemy. Uh, with the, the guns on the new ships, they could rotate and they had much better range. Uh, at, can you see the seat there, lads? Are you in your way? Yeah. Um, then the signalling had changed from flag signalling to semaphore and radio, which was obviously much more efficient. Flags had a, the shortfall was if you had poor visibility, it was very hard to make out signals. And here, here is the sailing ship, and the ship on the right is um, HMS Line, which fought in the Battle of Jutland, and uh, that's just before um, the start of the war. We'll be hearing about HMS Line as we go on. Uh, this, these two gentlemen were, played a pivotal part in the war. The two of them are first cousins. The man on the left is the Kaiser, Kaiser William II, and the man on the right is King George V. Uh, both of them were uh, grandsons of Queen Victoria. Um, King George, I think, was the grandson of uh, her eldest son, and the Kaiser was the grandson of her eldest daughter. Um, both of them were very interested in the Navy, and the Kaiser had always envied the British Navy. Uh, as a young fellow, he was brought over to different uh, naval displays uh, to his grandmother in, uh, around Plymouth and Portsmouth, and he always envied the Navy and swore that when he would get into power that he would have a strong Navy, and he was true to his word. Uh, King George V served for several years as a commander in the Royal Navy. Uh, so when the arms race started, it started in earnest, and these two men were driving it on as well in the background. Um, naval strategies in the 1800s. Um, there was a thing in 1888, um, the British were getting worried about their, uh, their Navy ships, um, that they weren't as strong a power as they had been, 
and there was a Commons uh, Select Committee, and uh, they decided the outcome of the Select Committee was that they'd have the two-power standard, and the two-power standard was that the British Navy would be kept at a strength that was more powerful, bigger than the next two most powerful navies in the world. Now, at this stage, it was the French and the Russians they had in mind. Um, when they came out with the standard, at that time, there were two schools of thought in um, naval thinking. One was by this guy, Alfred Maherden, who was an American geostrategist. And he had done a big paper on... Um, navies of empires for the last couple of thousand years going back to the Phoenicians and the Greeks and the Romans and he came up with this theory that the ones with the biggest ships always were the most powerful empire and if you didn't have big ships you weren't going to dominate the seas dominating the seas was the most important thing because it kept your trade routes and everything open so he came up with this and this is the school of thought that the British ran with mostly the second school of thought was, um, I don't have French now, but this is a Jean Ecole, I think it's something like that. It's called the New School of Thought. New School, that's, that's French for New School. Um, and this school of thought was that you went with small, small ships, fast ships with torpedoes, and submarines with torpedoes. And you got in fast and hit the enemy and ran. You didn't go face to face and have a, a fisticuff battle with them. Um, Sir John Fisher was the first sea lord of the Navy in 1905 and he was influential in uh, the ships built from there on which were the big big ships and a lot of these ships fought at Jutland um, and one of his um, strategies was to actually lighten the superstructure on the ships leave the hull still strong but lighten the metal on top of the ship and this actually led to some of the ships of the British Navy sinking in Jutland, and he was criticised afterwards for this um, strategy. Uh, naval strategies in the early 1900s then, we had um, the Naval Acts ran from 1889, and every couple of years in England and in Germany and in France, they have their Naval Acts, and the Naval Act really was to get more money out of the government and out of the taxpayer, ultimately, to finance the next building scheme of ships and these ships were uh, the, the naval development at this stage was incredible as soon as the ship was, was no sooner off the, on, the, on paper then it was outdated there was the next drawings were uh, of a ship that was much far, far more superior to it so much so that by the time the first world war started ships that had been built in 1906 and 1907 were seen as almost obsolete at this stage, seven years later. This was a very expensive um, arms race, a naval arms race, um, but it, there, there were advantages to it as well. Uh, the two-power standard focus at this stage was, as I said, was on France and Russia. Um, there was massive job creation right throughout the British Empire in coal mining, building, shipbuilding, armaments and transport. These um, big dreadnoughts and ships carried about 3,000 tonnes of coal. Uh, they burned about 25 tonnes an hour going at full steam and they had only enough coal to last them five or six days. So you had to get that coal out of the mines in Wales or in Newcastle or wherever and you had to transport it to wherever, whatever bases there were um, needed the coal. So the amount of work that that created for local people all over um, the British Empire. 
um, as well as Castleton Bear was a base, uh, the closest base, uh, sorry, west of here. Um, and Castleton Bear was upgraded in 1903, and it was all part of this uh, program that had started from 1889. And when they had finished in Castleton Bear in 1903, it could hold a half a billion tons of coal. Um, so that's 500 million tons of coal. So that created huge jobs in around Castleton Bear in the Banshee area. And um, that kind of shows afterwards in the casualties in the Battle of Jutland. There was only two from the whole Bearer Peninsula killed in the battle. And I think the reason for that, again, is that they didn't have to go to sea to get the jobs. The jobs came to them because with the coal and uh, uh, fueling the ships in Castleton Bear. Um, in 1905, there was a huge, uh, Japanese had a huge victory, uh, naval victory over the Russians. And it was the first time that these big ships were used uh, in a big battle. And they annihilated the Russians completely. Uh, this proved the effectiveness of large ships and endorsed the British idea that we would continue building these dreadnoughts. Um, and the Russians were no longer a threat. Uh, the focus now became uh, Germany. Germany also upped its game at this stage and they, their b uh, building programme increased as well. So this was the, the race was between Britain and Germany. Meanwhile, in the background, you had nationalist tensions arising all over Europe um, and we were no different here. There was a nationalist awareness from the 1880s, 1890s onwards and it continued apace in the background while um, all this stuff was going on in the, between the major navies of the world. Um, in 1909, the, um, the British were so convinced that they were going to eventually come to blows with the Germans that they drew up uh, the War Committee plan and they were going to have a distant blockade on Germany if war did break out. And they were going to basically um, going to have uh, control of the shipping between Northern Scotland, the Orkney Islands and um, Norway. And they were going to do the same down here in the channel between France and, um, and um, England. And basically they were going to um, stop goods getting to Germany by sea. And they were also going to seize anything that came out of Germany. And they had the Navy, they reckon, to do, to do that. Um, the Navy there was a huge Navy tradition along the Cork coast, all along the coastline, as well as going back to the 1600. Um, in 1600, the Spanish landed in Castleton Bear, in Castlehaven, and in um, Kinsale. And this kind of cut the British, um, and after that, they strengthened their naval defences in Cork, um, and they had also had naval presence in Kinsale. So that definitely provided jobs for people around the Lower Cork Harbour area and the Kinsale area. Um, this, uh, then it, 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 uh, again, after 1796, the French almost landed, and bad weather um, um, stopped them from landing in Bantry. And after that, again, the British um, upped their defences along the coast, and that's where we see the towers along Towhead and um, Spain Tower in Baltimore and all along the headlands. There was a huge building program, um, naval de uh, defence building program, between 1804 and 1812. Um, the, 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 by the time we came to the First World War, an awful lot of Irish people had, or Irish lads along the coast here, 
had got jobs in the Navy because there was very little else to do, farm labouring, and there was very little of that available, but our fishing, our a job in the Navy if you were from near the sea area. Um, and the pay was far better than it was in, at farm labouring. A farm labourer in um, 1914 got about 14 shillings a week. Um, and that was provided that he had work every day. And, of course, in bad weather, he didn't. Um, if he joined the Navy, he immediately got 19 shillings a week. And as he got promoted, then he got bonuses or whatever. He got extra money in his wages. And there was also a separation allowance for his wife while he was uh, away for, at sea. Um, they also experienced electricity on board the ships. So there was luxuries that their uh, cousins or their um, family and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers didn't experience for another 40 years. They had experienced uh, electricity in the late, or from 1900 onwards, it was on ships. Um, and they would, were able to read without candlelight and so, or without a lamplight and stuff like that. Uh, so this was a huge uh, experience for them, I'm sure. Um, there was also personal advancement. Um, you could actually do exams and stuff in the Navy. You could get on. Some of them did do, do that. And one of them was uh, Patrick Welton from um, Glendore. Patrick died in HMS Defence in the Battle of Jutland, but he was a bosun, which was um, officer class. He had joined as an ordinary seaman, and he had worked his way up. And when you look at Patrick's record, you can see where he got uh, past different exams along his um, career development. Another man was Jeremiah Crowley from Clannacilty, who also, he was a petty officer uh, stoker. Um, and again, you can see where he uh, did exams, passed exams, and advanced himself. So there were opportunities for people to have careers in the Royal Navy. Now, they were still at the lower end of things. Um, they were down at the stoker level. They were usually in the engine room, the Irish lads. The Royal Naval Reserve was set up in 1858, and the idea was that uh, Britain hadn't been at war since 1815. Uh, the Navy hadn't been um, at war since 1815, and um, it was expensive to maintain a full-size Navy. So what they decided to do was bring in... Um, the Royal Naval Reserve, which was like our own FCA, sort of a reserve um, navy. And these fellows would um, normally be fishermen or retired merchant seamen. And they would supplement uh, crews on navy ships. They trained fully with the navy. Um, they trained about four times a year. And from here, from West Cork, they went to Kinsale to train. And they got an allowance per quarter for um, training with the Royal Navy Reserve, but they would be expected then that if um, hostilities broke out, that they would have to sign up to the Navy. Um, the Stokers, I actually have... Um, the Stokers had the toughest life of all the people on the ship. They just shoveled coal into the boilers, and I have an eyewitness and account here of how difficult it was for the Stokers. Um, you just have to bear with me now, and I guess uh, this is from a midshipman on HMS Indomitable. He says, The furnaces devoured coal as fast as a man could feed them. Looking down from the iron catwalk above, the scene had all the appearance as one from Dante's Inferno. Watching the pressure gauges for any fallen steam pressure, the chief stoker walked to and fro, encouraging his men. Now and then the telegraph from the engine room would clang and the finger on the dial move around to the section marked more steam. 
and the sweating men would redouble their efforts, throw open the furnace doors and shovel still more coal into the blazing inferno. Um, it was a horrific place to have to work in, horrific conditions. And um, they had generally they did two hours down, at, uh, down there and two hours up on deck. Um, the working temperature was roughly 52 degrees Celsius. So it was absolutely roasting down there. They worked, um, they had uh, no shirts or anything on, they were topless obviously, but as soon as they were finished, they rushed straight up then into, onto the deck. So you can imagine if you were in the North Atlantic, which many of the, them were, you were walking down this 52 degrees Celsius and you came up to maybe three or four degrees in the water. Um, and many of them got um, developed pneumonia and stuff like that and died very young. On HMS line, there was 60% of the crew, and there was almost 1,000 in the, in the crew, 60% of them worked in the engine room. And most of the Irish, all the 90% of the Irish from around the coast here that were in the Royal Navy worked as stokers, or trimmers, which was also down in the depths of the ship. They'd be about five or six stories down in the ship. They wouldn't see daylight until they cut back up to deck again. Um, Coal dust was the big thing. It was just continuous working, continuous dusty, cold, dusty um, atmosphere. Uh, there was uh, associated diseases that they contacted were the most obvious one as well to be heat stroke, uh, muscle cramps, rheumatism, pneumonia, pleurisy, catarrh, and black lung disease. And uh, there are descriptions of autopsies that were carried out on stokers that died and um, their lungs, were, they said, were like shoe leather. They were just completely clogged up from the dust. Um, and there were hor- horrific conditions. But in 1860, the Lancet Journal, which is a very respected uh, medical journal, which is still going today, described the stoke hall in the ship as a cavern of torture and a hotbed of disease. Um, and I was reading, actually, where um, it wasn't acknowledged until the 1950s when people were finished with coal, more or less, or the diesel was taking over, that it was acknowledged by the authorities that uh, coal dust was harmful to the health. And there was one doctor, I think, in a mine in Pennsylvania in the 1920s who said that, as far as he was concerned, coal dust was good for you, that it helped to prevent tuberculosis. Um, Uh, there was a major naval exercise off the south coast of England in uh, July um, 1914. Um, it started, I think, somewhere about 7th or 8th of July and finished around the 22nd of July. Now, the previous month, Archduke Ferdinand had been um, assassinated and diplomacy was starting to break down throughout um, Europe. Um, when the naval exercise finished, it, it, the naval exercise would have involved all the Royal Navy Reserve lads, including the Lehina men. And when the naval exercise finished, all the ships were ordered north to Scotland instead of coming back to their bases. Uh, they were held in Scotland and on war was declared on the 4th of August. And on the 5th of August, all the Royal Navy lads were mobilised. And that's on all their Navy records, mobilised on the 5th of August. Um, so even if you, didn't, if you wanted to stay out of the war, you didn't have a chance. There was no hope in staying out of it. You were just whittled off. So I think that the lads from Lehina and from around here that were in the Royal Navy Reserve um, 
were away on exercise when the war broke out and they didn't have a chance to, to come back. Now, they may have come back after when the ship would be docked. Or the ships were rarely pulled in, but they did have to be serviced every now and again. The boilers had to be um, looked after and stuff. And then you would get a chance maybe to get home for a day or two. So I don't know if, how much uh, uh, leave of absence they got between that and uh, the 15th of the 1st of, um, 31st of May 1916. Um, the naval tactics in the war then, the Germans uh, basically tried to coax the, out the Royal Navy by attacks on the English coastline. Um, at this stage, the English had by f- a far bigger number of boats than the Germans. So what they did, they adopted this kind of um, naval guerrilla warfare, as you'd call it. They'd come in and they'd fire on coastal areas along the British coast and in the hope that British ships would come out and chase them and they would have submarines waiting and um, would um, ambush the ships. Um, on the 24th of April 1916, which was the day of the Easter Rising, there was one such attack in um, the, the south of England and they killed about um, 250 people. They just pu- uh, pulled up outside the town and just started firing um, shells into the town. Uh, in the meantime, the Royal Navy maintained this distant blockade, and um, it was, at this stage it wasn't having a huge effect, but in time it would. Now, the, on the 30th of the 5th, the um, British received intelligence that the German ships were leaving Jade, and that there was a large number of them on the way out. So the British were expecting another attack on the British coast. So they, had, they, were, up in Scot- they were all up in Scotland, the Northern Fleet, and they um, got ready to um, leave and left at about 10 o'clock that evening and headed south towards Denmark because they thought that they might intercept them somewhere there. At 2pm, there was a little tramp steamer called the NJ Fjord. It was um, a Danish ship, and it was going along, and it was stopped by a German advance um, naval vessel. And the day had been, was a calm enough day, the previous couple of days in that area of um, northern Denmark had been um, very balmy and calm, and there was very little wind. But when it stopped, they had it stopped for an hour, an hour and a half, and when it was stopped, this mushroom cloud rose up overhead and stayed there statically. So what they did was um, the British... um, Navy, one of the British Navy ships saw it and they launched a um, plane from HMS Indigene. This is probably the first time in war where a plane was used. Um, Ingadine was a converted um, cross ferry um, ship and it had carried two seaplanes. Uh, it launched a seaplane which stayed in the air for 53 minutes. It developed a leak, the seaplane, and had to come back to the mothership. But while it was in the air, it had seen the German fleet, the direction they were coming, and calculated what speed they were doing, um, and uh, passed the information on to the British so that they could intercept. At 3.48pm, the first shots of the battle were fired at a range of roughly the two fleets were about 10.5 miles apart. The German fleet was heading north, and the British fleet was heading southeast. At 4pm... The first serious casualty, HMS Lion, which we saw earlier on, was hit, um, and it was it, it wasn't sunk, 
but there was 90 sailors killed in Q Towers, which is one of the towers where uh, one section of the guns were. Um, and I suppose the reason I put that in there is um, the ED man from Cardiff, who I had, um, was tracking down, he had been on, he was on HMS line and he was in Q Towers, but uh, he survived. And when he came back, he told his family that he had um, lost his way in the ship because he wasn't used to it. He hadn't been long on the ship. And when, by the time he got to uh, his, where he should be, uh, the ship had been hit and his, all his colleagues were dead. But uh, I checked his um, naval record and the naval record showed him coming onto that ship, HMS Line, on the 15th of May, which was just two weeks before. So his story was no doubt correct. Um, at, at the same time, HMS Indefatigable was sunk. Um, it was hit by a salvo of shells and uh, it was lost with um, 1,017 lives. Now, HMS Indefatigable, I consider that the um, Skibbereen ship because there was um, seven men from the Skibbereen area on it. Um, and they were J John Callan from High Street Skibbereen. He was a first-class stoker. He had joined in 1892, and he had been a labourer before he joined. David Casey from Carrick Fadas Skibbereen. He, uh, I don't know when he joined with his record. I wasn't able to get his record. Timothy Collins from Cora, he joined in 1907. Michael Holland from Joshan Skibreen, he joined in 1899. Patrick Foley uh, joined from, in 1899, he was also from Skibreen. And there was a Peter Foley who was born in Skibreen, but his father was in the Royal Navy and he was living up in Arklow. Um, he um, joined in 1890. So they all went down with um, HMS Indefatigable. There were believed to be over 300 Irishmen on HMS Indefatigable, with a lot of people from um, Arklow and Wexford on board. Um, there was, I think, 49 Corkmen on it. It was a 590-foot-long battlecruiser, and it was built in 1909, and it was fueled by uh, 3,170 tonnes of coal and 840 tonnes of oil, and to the top speed of 26 knots. Um, and I have a photograph of it before the battle. This is taken a couple of months before the Battle of Jutland. And this is a photograph just after it had been hit and it was sinking. A quarter of an hour later, the next huge British loss was with 1,266 sailors. Uh, it was the HMS Queen Mary, which suddenly um, exploded. Uh, the deck had been hit by a shell which penetrated it somehow and um, caused it to sink taking all those lives. And one of those uh, from around here that was on it was Arthur Kidney from Port McSherry. Um, and there is an eyewitness account of it just after it being hit. And um, the eyewitness account was he, he was in HMS uh, Dublin. And he said she was still speedy along at about 20 knots, listing first to port, which is the left side, and then to starboard, which is the right side. Um, she was ploughing deeper into the sea with her guns raised, still red hot from firing and hissing as they met with the cold water of the North Sea. He described seeing several survivors on board and described the powerlessness of being unable to help. Her propellers were still turning as she sank below the surface, taking all those people with her. And I think that, uh, I know there, have been, there were uh, days when there was huge losses in the um, First World War, 
But I think that is probably the biggest single loss of one action where almost 1,300 people went in just one uh, action in the war. I know there were days in the Western Front where um, I think there was one day at the Battle of the Somme where there was 27,000 French soldiers killed. And I think the opening day there was about 19,000 um, British troops killed. But this was in a single action where uh, you had that many people um, getting killed. The next one then is the what I call the Clannacilty boat, the HMS Defence and the HMS Warrior. Uh, the Warrior, um, the, both of them were involved in a dogfight with um, three German boats. Uh, called, one was the Wiesbaden, the Pilo and the Frankfurt. And the Wiesbaden had been badly hit at this stage and um, there wasn't much left in her. Um, at this stage, as was I better described, the, the weather had changed because they had moved 40 or 50 miles away from the initial place and there was a bit of mist. There was ferocious amount of smoke uh, brought from the boilers of the ships because they were going at full uh, steam and for the fire of the guns, there was also a huge amount of smoke. So visibility was very poor. But um, HMS Defence took... Um, the decision the, uh, the commander of HMS Defence took the decision that he was going to go in and finish off Wiesbaden um, which was on his dying feet really uh, but as he did so out of the mist at about 3,000 yards came four or five big German dreadnoughts and they opened up on HMS Defence and within three or four minutes she exploded and um, sank with 903 people on board um, the Brickleys from Lehina and John Falvey from Lehina were all on board the ship as there were, as were a couple of Clannacilty lads. There was David Brickley. Um, he had joined the Royal Navy Reserve in 1912, so he was, had been on in, in it a couple of years. James Brickley had joined in 1913. Both of them had been labouring and fishing before they joined, uh, or before they joined up. Um, Jeremiah Crowley from Barrick Street, Clannacilty. He had been in the Navy since 1901 and he had been um, a railway porter before he joined. Uh, there was a Patrick Lawrence Daly from Timaleague. Uh, he joined in 1903. There was a John Donovan from Lamb Street, Clannacilty. He joined in 1904. Both of those had been labourers before they joined the Navy. John Falvey from Lehina. John had joined the Royal Navy Reserve on the 18th of February 1913 and he had described himself as an agricultural labourer and uh, fishing before he joined. James John Hayes from Rena Screena, uh, he had joined in 1908, he was a farm labourer. Thomas Henry Reynolds from Court McSherry, uh, he had been in the Navy since uh, 1900, so he had 16 year service in the Navy. And the highest ranking West Cork man on that ship was Patrick Welton from um, Glendore, who was a bosun and he had joined the Navy in 1905. He described his occupation before joining as a labourer uh, curing fish. So I presume that was probably in Union Hall. Uh, the ship itself was 552 feet long and was built in 1907 at a cost of 1.362 um, million uh, pounds, which would be the equivalent of roughly around uh, a billion in today's money. We have an eyewitness account of the sinking of it, and um, we also have a photograph. And the photograph was taken within seconds of the eyewitness account. That is the photograph of it. 
and I'll read the eyewitness account for you. It's from a Captain Poland who was on um, the war spite, which was uh, nearby. The black, sea, you see in the back, is the weed garden uh, that they were going in to finish off. And uh, this Captain Poland wrote to his brother three days later, and he wrote, I saw the defence coming down our starboard bow, engaged side, heading straight at the enemy with a cloud of white smoke amidships and aft. She was banging away and going at full speed, masthead colours and all the rest of it, and made a very gallant show. I saw three salvos fall across her in quick succession, beauties. A flicker of flame ran aft along her forecastle head and up her fore turret, which seemed to melt. Then woof, up she went, a huge single sheet of flame, 500 feet high, mixed with smoke and fragments. As it died down, I saw her crumpled bow, red hot at an angle of 60 degrees, and then she sank. I nearly vomited. God, it was an awful sight. I couldn't get to sleep that night for thinking of it. So that's Captain Poland's um, uh, description of the ship. Uh, there was a total of 903, I think, was the total loss of life on HMS Defence. At 6.32, um, HMS Invincible sank. This was a huge moral blow to the British because uh, this was the flagship of the fleet and Admiral Hood was on board. Uh, he was a very senior officer in the Royal Navy at the time um, and the highest ranking Cork sailor that died in... Um, it was also on board and he was uh, Richard Townsend, uh, Commander Richard Townsend. Um, Richard Townsend was of the Townsends of Castle Townsend. He was eighth generation from the Richard Townsend that had come over with Cromwell in 18, or six, 1647. He actually was here before Cromwell. But uh, this man was the eighth generation down. But he was lost on um, the Invincible. He had, uh, I think his father was a doctor in um, Cove and he was um, the doctor, I think, attending Cork Prison for many years. Um, but the Invincible, um, there was about eight or nine people from different parts of Cork last on the Invincible. The photograph to the left, uh, you can see a bright kind of... And if that was in colour, it would be red or whatever. That is the explosion on the Invincible. And she split in two and she stayed floating for about three hours afterwards. Um, she was about um, 600 feet long. And um, the depth of water there was about 300 feet. So she stayed floating until all the compartments filled in each of the sections. She split in two and then she sank. Um, at one point in the battle, uh, the British had... Um, a great opportunity to have a decisive victory. They got to a point where they crossed the T, which is where you want to get if you're uh, in a naval battle fighting with your enemy. And if you cross the T, you're almost guaranteed of a victory. Uh, but they didn't get it because the Germans, um, due to their efficiency really, and I suppose they had lots of practice in practice this manoeuvre in getting out of it, and it worked for them. Um, it's a thing called, and some of you might be able to, in German, <laughs> the, the last bit is Stuart which is starboard. But basically, the, the way it works is the British ships are the red ships there, and all their guns are bearing down on the advancing German ships. Now, the German ships are at a disadvantage, and the only thing that can get a clean shot is the fell in front with the guns. The rest have very limited um, 
uh, angles. But as the British ships are going along, they're pounding this fella and they're pounding the next fella that comes in to man the next fella. So it's, it should have worked out as um, uh, an overwhelming victory for the British. But the Germans pulled off this stunt, which is battle about turn to starboard. So all, the, all, the, all those um, German ships turned to starboard, so they were suddenly all facing that direction. And within seconds, they got the same command again, turned to starboard, and all of a sudden, they were heading away from the British. And in the smoke and the confusion, the British lost them within 30, 40 seconds. They didn't know where they were going. Um, the British decided, anyhow, um, Jellicoe was in charge of the fleet, so he decided that he was going to head down towards Jade, which is uh, the German port, and that he'd get them coming back in, thinking that they had gone out and that they'd go down. But what the Germans did was they went back around, this thing isn't there, oh yeah, they went back around the, the stern of the fleet and cut inside and headed off to Jade, which is way down here. Now he wasn't going to chase in there because he was afraid of submarines, that there was going to be an ambush that the Germans had submarines coming behind. It cost the Jellicoe his um, job afterwards. He was put to a desk job shortly after getting back. Uh, this, I think, was the unluckiest ship of um, the whole battle to the Black Prince. And she had got separated from the fleet. And sometime after midnight, she saw ships ahead. So she headed over to the ships. And she was only about a half a mile away when she suddenly realised she was actually next to the German fleet. The German fleet had spotlights on their ships. The British didn't have at this stage of the war, but uh, they turned on the spotlights and uh, spotted the English ship and they opened fire. And one of the first shots actually landed square on the deck and crippled the ship. So the German ships kept all past her and each one of them fired shells into her. And um, she um, exploded. Um, well, she, didn't, she didn't actually explode for a while, but she caught fire and she was completely crippled. Um, there was one man from Ross Carberry on board. Um, he was uh, Patrick Leary from Ross Carberry. Um, the Admiral Shear, the German commander, was on one of the ships that uh, went past it. And uh, he later described seeing um, the burning ship in the darkness and seeing these sailors running up and down trying to escape. He said they were like ants at a, on the... Uh, a hill. Uh, there was 857 <coughs> sailors lost, and that was the last biggest, big Brit, uh, biggest, big British uh, loss in the Battle of Jutland. Uh, during the night, there were skirmishes throughout the night, in mostly involving smaller boats. The Germans lost a couple of bigger boats. All right, during the night, um, uh, one by uh, where smaller boats had fired torpedoes at her. Um, there was from the Danish coast. They couldn't. They could actually hear distant explosions, and they could see kind of flashes away on the horizon. There was this was they were over fifty miles offshore, so but it was still possible to uh, to um, know there was some action going on out there. Um, in the following days, there was uh, about two hundred bodies, I think, washed up on the Danish coastline. I think there was only one cork body washed up in the whole um, lot of it. There were extremely tough conditions on board during battle engagements, and um, I do have um, an eyewitness account of that from a German ship from the Battle of Dogger Bank, which took place almost a year before this battle. And he describes uh, the engine room. 
it was bad enough working in the engine room under normal circumstances, but when you were under fire, um, he describes, he says, in the engine room, a shell licked up the aisle and sprayed it around in flames of blue and green, scouring its victims. <coughs> the terrific air pressure resulting from explosion in a confined space roars through every weak spot. Open doors bang to and jam, and closed iron doors bend outwards like tin plates, and through it all, the bodies of dead men are whirled about like dead leaves to be b- b- battered to death against the iron walls. So it was a, a horrific um, experience to be on these ships. And when they had these catastrophic explosions, I'd say that was just instant because you were in a confined space. And these ships were built, they weren't built, there was no luxury on them, there was no teak trimmings, or there was no leather trimmings, they were just straight edges, and there was no health and safety in those times. So. Um, there were um, tough, tough conditions. The casualties, there was uh, over 6,000 British uh, sailors killed and there was uh, 2,500 um, Germans, uh, a total of 8,648 killed in, um, I suppose, little more time than the tw- Twin Towers together and there was almost three times the number died in more or less the same time. We'll move on a small bit into a case study of the Brickleys and the Falvies from Lehenna. Um, David and James are in the bottom line there, um, and they, David was born in 1892, and James was born in 1894, so they were in their early 20s when um, they died at Jutland. Their father, William, died in 1907, and actually, it was only last week, I found there's a whole lot of new records after coming online, a lot of civil deaths, births and marriages um, are online from that era. And um, I came across um, William Brickley's um, death um, report. And the ironic thing about it is it was reported by James, his son, who died in Jutland. Uh, It was reported in 1908 he died. Um, And the cause of death is probably a heart attack. He was only 57 years of age. So Mrs Brickley had uh, lost her husband and she lost uh, the two lads a um, couple of years later. So there was, in Griffith's valuation, which was taken about 1852 for Lehina, there's a John Brickley owned two acres in Lehina. Um, there's no other um, Brickleys in Lehina recorded in Griffith's. So that John was, I think, maybe have been a brother of Williams, or sorry, an uncle of Williams, their father. Um, so they weren't people of land. They had, like many people of that time, they had just enough to grow an acre of spuds and um, it was very bare living, really. Um, so these pe- lads, when they grew up, would have welcomed the extra few bob in the Royal Navy Reserve on top of whatever they got fishing. I also came across another record, actually, from uh, Barry's Cove, which is a little cove it's only about a mile, less than a mile away from where the Brickleys were um, uh, born. And it was for a John Brickley who joined the Navy in 1859. Um, he was born in 1844, just before the famine. And he joined in 1859. And he served in HMS Victory, which was a sail training vessel at that stage. Um, but that John would, I'd say, was probably an uncle. I haven't made the, the connection. I couldn't get his birth record. It isn't recorded. But that wouldn't be unusual for around anything around the famine times was um, records as, as hit and miss, really. Um, but it would show that there was a kind of... If, if he is his uncle, it would show that there was a kind of a tradition, like if your uncle was in the Navy or your father was in the Navy, 
there was a chance you'd get a job in it. And that was certainly the case with some of the people in um, Court McSherry. Thomas Reynolds was his father. I think Jim was in the Coast Guard, wasn't it? In Lehenna, in the... 1841 census, there was 539 people in the townland, and it declined by 1851. By the time William was born, the father of these two lads, the population had declined by 42%. By 1911, the population had declined by 66%. So you had only one person where there had been three there um, 60 or 70 years earlier. Uh, now, they didn't all die in the famine. A lot of them, I'm sure, must have immigrated but there would have been debt and immigration, including those figures. In 1890, there was a famine along the coastal areas of um, West Cork and Barry Row. There was one person died, um, and there was a report just sent out from the Freeman's Journal um, in, uh, I think it was uh, September or October that year, and he interviewed people in this Levan, and he interviewed one shopkeeper who had lost... His shop had closed because he couldn't pay... Um, his um, suppliers in Cork because the local people didn't have money to pay him um, and he said it was because of this latest famine the blight had, the spuds had failed uh, all along um, the old Heddy Kinsale and back into Scardone and across the coast it just seemed to hit the coast uh, Myris and Kilmackaby there was three or four people died but anyway it turned out that this woman actually didn't die from um, hunger she died from um, poisoning from eating um, the rotten potatoes but he gave a very good account of conditions in 1890, which is when a lot of these young sailors would have been born, and some of them were, some of them that died at Jutland were actually um, joining in the 1893, 94, and that. But uh, it, they were depending on yellow meal um, coming from Tanakilty to feed them. Uh, they had no no coal or anything like that. Um, they were broma, they were called it. They were burnt, which was the furs, bushes and stuff. That's what they kept themselves warm with. They had sold all their cattle, so they didn't know what they were going to do for the next year because um, it was really um, starvation again. So there was only one crop away from starvation. It's actually David Brickley's um, record, and it's the date that he actually um, signed into the Navy was uh, the 5th of the 8th, 14, which confirms that... He was in the day after the war started. Uh, the Royal Navy Reserve lads were paid uh, naval prize money um, after the war. And this is the David Brickley's one, which was given to his mother. And basically what it says is that um, in 1920, she received 12 pounds and 15 shillings. And 1923, she received 18 pounds, 15 shillings. And uh, again, later in 1923, she received two pounds and ten shillings. She would have got that for each of the two boys, and she would have got a small pension then for the rest of her life from the British government. Um, this is the Falvey family. Again, I'm sorry now that it's not uh, clear, but there was um, at least eight in the family and possibly more. Uh, there was three brothers, and uh, Lawrence, uh, John, and... Um, the other one is Dennis. They were in the Royal Navy Reserve. Dennis and Lawrence survived the war, but Dennis died in 1922 in uh, Lehenna, and his uh, cause of death in his Navy record is um, tubercular uh, problem, is what it says. So there's no doubt that that was caused probably by the coal in the ship. Um, Lawrence went to Liverpool after the war, 
and he rejoined the Royal Navy Reserve in Liverpool and after a couple of years he went to Australia and I don't think he came back. Um, their father was um, William and he married uh, Catherine Madden was her name um, and that's John Falvey's Navy record. The battle after Matt Ben, there was first thing that I noticed when I did my research was the different burial um, rituals for the British and the German Navy. Uh, the morning after the battle, they, they, the British started heading back. It took them about 12 hour, or 20 hours to get back to their bases in Scotland. But at 12 o'clock on that day, that was the 1st of June, at um, exactly 12 o'clock on HMS line, the 90 sailors that had been killed were all buried at sea over the side of the boat. And the way they buried them was um, they, each of them was put into a piece of sailcloth that was sewn up as a shroud and there was a shell put to the bottom of the sewed in with them, so that when they went over the side, they were, um, it went to the bottom. But the Germans, by contrast, then the Germans brought all their dead back to um, William Haven, and they were all buried, I think, on the 3rd of um, June in one big mass of um, ceremony. So there were two different rituals for um, the two different navies. I think the French were the same. If you died at sea, they put you into the hold, and they brought you back and buried you. Uh, ashore, whereas the British Navy always buried their dead at sea. After the immediate aftermath, both sides claimed huge victories. Uh, both sides were convinced that they'd won. The Kaiser came down to the German naval base immediately, presented all these victory medals to all the crew, and the British uh, were convinced that they had also won, even though they had, had more casualties, but they had crippled the German fleet. The British fleet was ready to go again uh, within 48 hours, the German fleet stayed ashore more or less for the rest of the war. They only made the odd skirmish out. Um, the Germans was reverted to unrestricted submarine warfare, uh, but the British still maintained their blockade. And in, by um, the winter of 1917, uh, they had uh, the turn winter in Germany, and a lot of people died. And the British came in for a lot of criticism after for uh, that because the British blockade was the first time that the uh, civilian population had been targeted directly by um, the armed forces of any country. Uh, now, it's been done lots of times since, and it's still being done. The aftermath for the sailors and their families then, they, there was, they came back to a ch uh, charged atmosphere, really, and a completely different political situation to what they had left. Like, when they left, they were part of the British Empire. Um, when they came back, they were, we were on the cusp of um, independence, First of all, they would go through a war of independence, which lasted two years, and then there was um, the Civil War. Um, in July 1917, for example, in Barry Row, the, uh, there was, um, the first volunteers were formed on the third attempt. Um, I think they tried twice during the year, but the RIC from Timberleague and uh, Court McSherry were present. Uh, it was done outside the church after Mass on Sunday, and within a week or two, there was 80 volunteers in Barry Row. And if you add to this that there was 110 already serving in the First World War, there was 190 at least serving in the parish of Barry Row in one army or the other. And it was the only thing that I can think that's anywhere near today is someplace like Syria, where there's so many different groups fighting. But 100 years ago, that's exactly what we had here. We had... Um, uh, a whole generation involved in conflicts and war and we weren't the only country, it was in several countries in Europe at that time but um, 
That's what these lads came back to. People here were getting ready for the War of Independence and their cousins and their brothers um, and their friends and neighbours were involved in it. Um, and um, so it was very uncomfortable for many of them coming back. Um, during the War of Independence, there was 200 civilians killed and out of that, 82 of them were ex-servicemen. And of those ex-servicemen, 29 of them were from West Cork. So West Cork was particularly hostile to ex-servicemen. And I think they became, mistakenly, in most cases, associated with atrocities committed by the Black and Tans. Uh, they, they were, the, these ex-servicemen were associated with them or they were put into the same box and um, they weren't welcome. And they were viewed by many as um, traitors or spies as well and suspicion. So the, it was tough for them. Um, there was universal grief after the First World War right across the world. Um, but England in particular, um, customs changed, social, there was social change. Um, wakes, they no longer had wakes in England really after the First World War because they'd become so accustomed for the body not coming back. So um, the funeral home kind of gradually crept in and we eventually followed for 50 or 60 years later. But I think we're going back again to the wake. Uh, but that was one of the social changes that was as a result of the war. But this universal grief and the silence after it, there was post-traumatic stress disorder, which wasn't recognised then, but um, the, and depression. And I suppose um, they used to say like, that they were suffering, they had been gassed or, you know, they were, which was a, it was a, a post-traumatic um, stress disorder in most cases. Uh, the sailors didn't wear the loss of the people that had lost sailors were at a loss because there was no um, graves for them. Um, to visit. Uh, Mrs Brickley had no graves to go to, Mrs Falvey had no grave to go to um, and that made grief even more difficult. It was very rare to get any mementos back of uh, sailors and um, stuff. In, if a fellow died in the trenches there was always a chance that one of his pals would pick up a photograph or uh, something belonging to him and bring it back but you had none of that with the sailors because all their stuff went down with the ship. And this, this generation were still in the shadow of the famine, really. When they came back, their father, our grandfathers and, uh, were still in the house with them and they had been through the famine. And most of them didn't speak about it. The famine was just this dark cloud. It was followed by the second cloud and the silence. And I think myself that it went much further than that and came up closer to our generation and institutional abuse and stuff like that. I think a lot of that... The silence that went with it came from these tough times down through generations. Um, and these fellows had no chance to um, record their experiences. Uh, the military archives um, the, um, contain records of people who fought in the War of Independence. There were people who were invited to make statements in the 1950s, the late 1950s. And the record was kept until, just kept for 30 or 40 years. And it was only, they were only released actually um, about um, five years ago, and they're an absolute fabulous um, for any historian doing research, and it records um, these people, their, their experiences during the war, during the War of Independence. The ex-servicemen didn't have a, any opportunity to do anything like that, and I think that kind of thing would have been therapeutic uh, if they had something like that to record their experiences. Um, there's also evidence of state discrimination um, in West Cork, um, there's a fellow, Tom Mullins, he was a TD for West Cork, and in 1928 he raised the doll question 
about um, some of his constituents who weren't getting the old age pension because they were in receipt of um, British Navy pension because they lost sons and he specified in the Battle of Jutland. So there was, they were discriminated by, against by the state. Whether that was intentional or whether it was just confusion in the early days of the state, it's hard to know. Uh, newspaper coverage, there was two newspapers in West Cork. There was the Southern Star, which was a nationalist paper, and you had the uh, Skibbereen Eagle, which was a loyalist paper. Uh, the cutting you see there is actually of, from the Skibbereen Eagle. They generally put photographs with uh, some of the sailors if they had to, uh, in, in a lot of cases. The Southern Star didn't. The Southern Star just covered it, basically, in one day, uh, the 10th of June, 1916, and the Timberleague notes and the Skibbereen notes. And the notes are comprehensive for those areas, and they list out all the people in the Barry Row area that had been killed and the people that had um, returned safely, or that were, the news had come in that they were safe. Um, then there's no more, really, from the Southern Star, except the odd little bit, bits and pieces. But the Southern Star had been saying what a great disaster, this was a huge disaster for the people of West Cork. Um, whereas the Skibbereen Eagle said it was a big victory for the British. And um, there was a, at that time there was the defence of the Realm Act, which brought in huge censorship to papers. Um, anything you published had to be viewed and you couldn't publish it unless they, um, the authorities agreed to it. And I think what happened was when they saw the um, Southern Star coverage, that it was contradicting what their official thing of this great victory. And here you had this paper in the south of Ireland saying that it was a major disaster. So um, I think that's, there was censorship at play, I think, for the Southern Star for the rest of the war. Because for the rest of the summer, the Skibbereen Eagle went on and on about uh, the great victory, the Battle of Jutland and the great officers and all this sort of stuff. Um, there's been huge inquiries into what went wrong um, in the war and how, why so many British ships suddenly exploded. And some of the stuff they've come up with is procedure failures rather than design features. Um, One-way shutters were left open, allowing flash flames to travel along the ammo and handling passages, lifts highs and to magazines. And they only discovered that in uh, 2003. They did a dive back in four or five of the big ships, like the Queen Mary, the HMS Defence, Indefatigable. And uh, they discovered these highs were left open. They dived in some of the German ships that were lost, and they had been closed, so the Germans had much better discipline in handling the ammunition and that. But I think it was the heat of battle, things were, uh, procedures were forgotten about, and uh, this flash flame just travelled through the ship. They did an experiment, and flash flame would travel at a speed of 1,000 feet per second. So if a flame hit here, it would let the other end of the ship less than a second. Um, they also blamed signalling efficiency. Uh, that the British weren't as good at signalling efficiency as the Germans, and the Germans were beginning to use radio at this stage. Um, they blamed lighter uh, superstructures on the British ships, which John uh, this Fisher had brought in earlier. And there was also one theory was that the Germans were better at mathematics, so they were able to calculate quicker on their shots and get uh, pick their targets that second or two quicker. Now this has been, people have ruled this out that said that that wasn't particularly true. Uh, these are the two commanders of the British, from the British side, um, Admiral Je um, Jellicoe and Vice Admiral David Beatty. Uh, Jellicoe was the man in charge and he um, was the man that was punished afterwards and got a desk job and Beatty got his job afterwards. Um, 
Jellicoe was would be, have been described as he was a cautious kind of a man, and that uh, they reckoned that when he had when the, the Germans had turned, that he should have been able to um, confront them again, and that he should have come away with a victory. The other man was uh, ex -Anglo, he was Anglo-Irish uh, descent. His mother and father were both from Ireland, even though he was born and reared in England. But he was a kind of a tally ho um, have a go kind of a man, and people are continuously arguing which would have been, would he be, would have, have had a big victory if he was in charge, and people are equally divided on it. They think that he could have lost just as well as uh, Jellicoe. Uh, the fleets after the war, then uh, the British fleet, most of the older ships were sold for scrap over the next ten years. Um, many of the newer ships went on to fight in World War Two, and most were scrapped by 1950. Uh, the German fleet was interned at Scapa Flow in 1918, and there was a crew of 20,000 sailors brought over with them. Uh, it was whittled down very fast. Um, there was uh, conditions in Scapa Flow where they were allowed to live on the ships, but conditions were bad, and they weren't allowed dentists, and they were um, treated pretty cruelly. Uh, a lot of them went back uh, home, and there was only two or 3,000 on the ship after Christmas of um, 1918. And that was scuttled on the 21st of June 1919. The Germans put high, they got orders, secret orders from the commander of the ships in Scapa Flow. The German crews were left on the skeleton crews were left on the ships, but they got secret orders from the commander that at 11 o'clock to hoist the German flag, which was completely contrary to regulations. They hadn't been allowed to fly it. Hoist the German flag and um, scuttle the ships, so they opened the seacocks. And at about one o'clock, the British noticed that several of the German ships were tilting <laughs> to the side, and the whole fleet sank. Uh, the Germans, or the British, got to one or two of them, and they ran them up onto uh, the shore, I think. But um, the majority of the fleet sank, and that's why it is a great diving site today. A lot of divers go up and still dive on the ships. Um, if you want to do further research, I suppose. Um, the National Archives UK is where you get the uh, naval records, and um, they're brilliant, really. They're, I've got most of uh, the records that I looked for. Uh, they do say that the World War I records, 60% of them were destroyed in the Blitz in World War II, but the Navy records seem to have survived, and I think that's because they were out in um, Devonport and Portsmouth, that they were out of London, they weren't brought back to London, whereas the Navy records were or the Army records were. Uh, that's a record of um, a Royal Navy Reserve, uh, John Falvey. That's his record, that's what it looks like. Um, and this record is, would be the regular Navy lad. And they're brilliant in that they give you um, his age, his height, his hair, his eyes, his complexion, any wounds or marks he would have on him. And you'd be amazed, you'd get tattoo marks on them and you'd get all birth marks and all sorts of stuff on them. Um, so if you were researching a family member, it's a great look back at them. It gives all the ships they served on and any qualifications they got along the way. And in a lot of them you see this DD, all the Jutland ones you see this DD, the 31st of May 1916, killed in action. And basically DD means um, discharged, dead. That's what they contain. Uh, we've been through that. Yeah. And in conclusion, yeah, what does uh, the Jutland mean to our heritage? And as was, I think it adds hugely to um, family histories. If you did have somebody who fought at Jutland, 
There's a, it adds to the family history, uh, but it also adds to local histories, like Barry Rono. Um, it has added hugely, really, to Barry Rono. There were six people killed, and we, just when we started researching, and there's some of the Court McSherry um, Barry Rono history group here tonight, and we started researching for a monument we put up earlier in the year in the Slovan to the 29 that died in the First World War from the parish, and there were six died in the Battle of Jutland, but when we started researching, we discovered there was 35 actually fought in the battle. So there was 35 different households around the parish that were involved in this battle, and we know very little about it, really. The other thing, I suppose, it's, the beauty about it is it's all available online. It's an online record. And for many of the relatives, like you'll only have births, deaths and marriage, and then may, <clears throat> that may be the only documentary evidence you'll have of them. But if you do find a record like this, it's an invaluable thing because it goes down through the years that he, of his service in the Navy. So it tells you an awful lot more about him than just his birth, death or marriage. Um, I think they're, they're excellent. The amount of information on the Navy records is excellent. Um, I think it sheds the whole Battle of Jutland story, sheds light, and the whole Navy uh, serviceman story sheds light into the socio-economic conditions here <coughs> in the decade of independence. Um, we learn an awful lot more about how bad things were really before these fellows joined the Navy and that conditions were tough for them in the Navy. <coughs> But they had no choice. They were just uh, one crop away from a crop failure away again from famine. Um, I also during the whole course of the study, I learned the difference between the soldiers in the First World War and the sailors. There was uh, slight differences. I suppose a lot of the soldiers went to join because of uh, John Redmond urged them to join uh, because he said the British would look on um, <coughs> more favourably favorably and give us um, home rule if uh, we joined and fought with them. The church urged people to join because they said that poor Belgium was being overrun by um, the Germans and that uh, Irish Catholics had a duty to join. So many soldiers joined up because of that. Um, so they were joined for rel religious or political reasons. And then there was the third branch who were joined as soldiers. So this was their career. But with the sailors, um, their service records showed that they were in it for... The previous atom had 10 and 12 and 15 year service. So they were in it for careers, really, um, in the service, and for socio-economic reasons, basically. Um, and from where they came from along the coast, they knew the sea, and it was, made, it was natural for them to opt for this career. So that's it. Fantastic lecture by Tony McCarthy from Barry Road. Thanks again to Dukas of Clonakilty for inviting Tony to speak and indeed for giving me the opportunity to record it. Once again, listeners, if any of you have anything you'd like to speak about relating to any particular topic in history, please get hold of the History Show, and we would only be too delighted to have you on. Music